Support for WPR comes from the Wisconsin DNR. Preventing food waste and composting scraps and uneaten veggies, grains, and fruit can help the environment. More dnr.wi.gov by searching food waste. Support for WPR comes from Lake Superior Big Top Chautauqua. Presenting concerts, shows, and events under a big canvas tent in Bayfield, Wisconsin, all summer long. Full schedule tickets and info at bigtop.org. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Between 1970 and 2020, the average household size in Wisconsin has dropped from 3.22 people to 2.36 people. That's according to U.S. Census data. The national numbers show a similar downward trend, but Wisconsin household sizes are now lower than the national average. Now that switch, 3.22 to 2.36, might not sound that far apart, but it represents a significant dip, especially when it comes to the housing stock that's available and attractive to individual people and to families with smaller households. A new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum dug into this census data and explored some of the factors behind the shrinking household size over the last half century, looked at why Wisconsin households are decreasing faster than national numbers. Our next guest is an expert on housing in the state. He joins us for a look at a mismatch between the size of our families and the size of our available housing. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? How big is your household? How does that compare to the one you grew up in? And are you finding a house or an apartment of the right size to match the number of people? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Kurt Paulson is an associate professor in the Department of Planning and Landscape Architecture at UW-Madison. His research focuses on affordable housing policy, municipal finance, and land use. Kurt, thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, those numbers seem pretty small and not that far apart, but it's a it's a pretty big deal, right, this dip in household size. Right. And if you multiply it by the millions of households, right, it becomes quite a, a demographic shift. And so it's what it means is that you're having a rise of one- and two-person households in the state of Wisconsin. And over the last decade, we've actually shrunk in terms of the three, four, and more-person households. And so that means it's both seniors who are staying in their homes, right? And obviously, maybe a spouse or partner has died, the kids have moved on, but it's also young folks just starting out. And Wisconsin seems to be uh, decreasing at a faster pace than the country as a whole. Are we just uh, older in general in Wisconsin? Is that the big part of the story there? Yes. I mean, we, we like to joke about it, but Wisconsin is kind of old and cold, right? So mm-hmm. we're not seeing a lot of the same in-migration that we're seeing in Texas, California, Florida, right? So most of the people who move here move when they're younger, they move for jobs, and then they tend to stay here. So we are... Our demographics are aging at a faster rate than other southern states, and our housing stock is also aging because we're just not building enough uh, to keep up with demand. And do we know about uh, where in the state household uh, household sizes are changing? Is this like a global phenomenon in Wisconsin or like a statewide phenomenon (laughs) in Wisconsin, or is this concentrated in urban areas or, or what? It's actually both, but it's for different reasons. So in a lot of our rural areas and small towns, Household size is going down because people are aging and young people are moving out. Here in Dane County and in Milwaukee, household size is decreasing largely because young people are moving in, right? So in some ways, it's where you capture people on that 
uh, circle of life, Lisa would say, mm-hmm. right? When you're young, you start out in an apartment, you get, have a job, right? And then you eventually maybe meet someone, you have a family, you have a house, then you want to downsize, you become a senior. So it's largely driven by these demographic shifts, older population, and younger people are not having as many children, and they're not having them as early in life as previous generations. Talking to Kurt Paulson, professor and expert on housing at UW-Madison, looking at a a mismatch here in the state, not just in Wisconsin, but definitely in Wisconsin. Smaller household sizes, smaller families, houses not keeping up. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. All right, Kurt, that's the household size. Now, what about the buildings, the apartments and houses that are in existence that these people want to live in? Right. So I think the term mismatch is a really good way to think about it, right? Because households come in all different sizes, flavors, income levels. And to make a balanced housing market, you need housing of every different size and type. So the market for years, given our zoning regulations and the the financing, really preferred that large kind of new build, suburban style house. So three or four bedrooms, right? 2,500 to 3,000 square feet. We build a lot of those, the large single family homes. And then we build a lot of more urban apartments, one or two bedrooms. So a lot of planners, designers, policymakers are looking at what we call the missing middle. That's that in-between product. We used to build a lot of in cities, right? This could be everything from boarding houses to Uh, what we call granny flats or accessory dwelling units. It's the duplex, the townhouse, the condos we were talking about. We just don't build a lot of that and have not for 40 years. And so when you have a one- or two-person household, whether a senior or a young person, you can either rent an apartment, and even apartments are difficult. If it's a two-bedroom, that's a lot of square footage. That's an expensive house. Or there's just not that much... uh, Households that want to buy that large single-family house or can afford it. Now, let's talk about somebody maybe early in their career, uh, and they're thinking, yeah, I want to do the the old thing, partner up. That's two people, have a kid or two to bring it up to three or four. Can you talk about uh, what options are out there or not out there when it comes to graduating uh, up through those the housing yeah. they would want? And that's a good way to put it. So if I think about my generation, my parents' generation, baby boomers, First-time home buyers or that entry-level house would have been a smaller house to own, like a, a th- two- or three-bedroom, maybe 1,200 to 1,500 square feet, the kind of older house we grew up in. That doesn't exist, or it's in short supply, or it's really expensive. So what we see in the data is that millennials in particular, right, 25 to 34-year-olds, they are uh, at peak home buying years, peak uh, childbirthing years, they're delaying having children and getting married because there's no place to buy. And it's hard to have children in a two-bedroom rental in a downtown environment. Let's bring in a caller at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Appleton. Michael, hello. Hi, Rob. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I'll, I'll try to condense this. <laughs> um, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm a two-person household. I'm a single dad. Uh, I'm 35. Uh, but I have my child early uh, at 20, so a lot earlier than a lot of the people I went to school with. Um, and w- another thing I've noticed, in addition, in, in addition to issues with housing availability or affordability, um, and it's especially hard to save when rents are increasing and there's fewer affordable places available near the jobs, 
Um, but also that a lot of people that I graduated with or a lot of young people generally um, are going out of state, often out of after graduating college or something like that. Is places like Minnesota with like paid family medical leave, uh, stronger worker protections, um, child care programs that are through the state, free breakfast or free meals, uh, all those things, you know, uh, even something as small as like uh, legal cannabis, uh, I know have made uh, a number of neighboring states especially very attractive to uh, a lot of folks that I know. Michael, thanks a lot for sharing your story. Michael uh, said basically five different things that could be subjects of entire half-hour <laughs> conversations. Kurt, I want to start with one early on there, people paying so much in rent that they can't save up for down payment to buy. Right, and so it's a double whammy, right, because the product is not there, the kind of lower-priced starter home is not there, and your dollars go a lot less far because interest rates are high. It's actually a triple whammy, and then you can't save for the down payment because rent is high. And to Michael's point, I think... It is a workforce recruitment and retention issue because young folks, if they can't find homes to buy in Wisconsin communities, they're going to move to other states. And so growing our, our population base, you know, I hear all across the state, right? We've got jobs. We can't get people. Well, you can't get people if you don't have housing. And I'll just say one more thing, sure. which is he said he was a single dad. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who is a, a single parent has a lot of challenges because you uh, just can't put the income together necessarily to buy a house. So one of the structural barriers is what would happen if we said a couple of single parents could buy a place together and kind of share cooking and, and living expenses, kind of pool your resources like we used to do. Oftentimes in the zoning ordinances, you can't live together uh, unless you're a, a biological family. Thanks again for that call, Michael. And I wanted to talk about the role of zoning in all this. I keep hearing concerns about you can't have that grandma flat or what other auxiliary building where one person can rent from you. Boarding houses, I think, are probably out of the picture in a lot of communities because of zoning. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. We've zoned out a lot of potential solutions here, right? Right. And so cumulatively over the last really hundred years, a lot of that kind of flexible, more urban uh, housing product of the, the boarding house, right, that's where that's where people used to live. My, my mom would talk about her grandma. I mean, my grandma taking in boarders in the in the 1920s this is what people did and boarding houses have been zoned out um, again that accessory dwelling unit and then the other issue we might want to address is the zoning defines single family housing mm -hmm. and it defines what is a family so again if you had four or five young people or seniors who want to live together to share living expenses that's one way to make it affordable oftentimes they are prohibited from doing that by the zoning because the zoning wants that kind of younger nuclear family with children. We're talking to Kurt Paulson, associate professor in the Department of Planning and Landscape Architecture at UW-Madison, looking at household size in Wisconsin. It's shrunk faster in the last 50 years than the rest of the country and what that means for housing, the size of houses and apartments not always matching up with the sizes of the households. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you seen the effects of smaller household sizes uh, when you look for a place to live? Is there something that's the right size for you, whether it's just you or you and one or two or other three family members? Have you tried to set up a, a roommate scenario? Was that available to you? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. 
We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk about housing in Wisconsin and a mismatch between what's available and what the average household size is as over 50 years, including uh, according to a new Wisconsin Policy Forum analysis, our average household size has gone down over the last 50 years or so. Kurt Paulson stays with us, Associate Professor in the Department of Planning and Landscape Architecture at UW-Madison. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions, your experiences, maybe your solutions. Go back to your calls now with Carrie in Cronenwetter. Carrie, hello. Hi. Um, I just have a point to make. Uh, A lot of communities um, have a minimum square foot requirement Um, in regard to how large of a home you can build. And this translates into what they get in property taxes, you know, as they're based on the square footage of a house. Um, My husband and I were in our 60s, and we had to get permission to build a 1,500-square-foot house. And did you get that permission, Carrie? Yes, we did, but it was the bare minimum that they would let us do. Interesting. Carrie, thanks so much for sharing that point and your story, Kurt. Yeah, I've heard this around the state. Uh, this is true uh, up in Cronenwetter. Um, I've heard it in Adams County, a lot of smaller towns, rural areas. They have these minimum sizes, largely a relic of the past in zoning, where they really wanted to maybe avoid uh, overcrowding or maybe a, near a college campus. They want they don't want kind of a party house. But as, as Carrie's point points out, this really inhibits housing choices for people, whether they're seniors or young people starting out. And so one of the easiest things we can do as a state is have local governments just eliminate minimum housing sizes. You know, if you say, she said 1,500 square foot, that's three bedrooms. That really limits who can live there to a family that's large enough or has enough income to afford it. You know, what is wrong, I always say, with an 800-square-foot house, a little two-bedroom, one-bath, the type of cottages you see in every neighborhood that was built before 1950? That's kind of that starter home, that move-down house for seniors, in the same way that there's frequently minimum sizes on apartments. And for a young person starting out or a a person who doesn't want to own a car and wants to live close to downtown, there's nothing wrong with a four- or 500-square-foot apartment. Right? So we've really kind of squeezed out that kind of flexibility in housing sizes to allow everyone who wants to, to, to kind of choose the housing that fits their size. So this, this is a great call from Kerry, right? Across the state, we're really shooting ourselves in our foot by having a minimum house size. There are building codes, right, which will stop uh, an overly small house. So there's still building codes. I would say, though, Within the zoning and the subdivision codes, get rid of minimum house sizes. Carrie, thanks a lot for that call. Something I think you and I have talked about in the past, Kurt, is, okay, even if it's allowed, do builders want to build smaller houses these days, or is there more money in it for them to make the bigger stuff? Well, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? Because if I'm a builder, there's plenty of opportunities to build the kind of custom higher-end luxury housing. But if we think of the single-family market, there's a lot of developers who want to build that kind of smaller product that people want, right? There's a huge demand for what we might call a, a cottage cluster or a kind of more uh, carriage-style house for, for seniors, for young folks. So it's a matter of economics, right? If the minimum zoning says a 10,000-square-foot lot, that's about a quarter of an acre, and if I'm paying $90,000 for the land and the infrastructure, 
There's no way you're going to build a small house on an expensive lot. So one of the things we're saying around the state, we're seeing a lot of cities and, and, and counties really move into this area, is can we reduce the lot sizes, allow more flexibility in setbacks and housing types? You can bring down that price of the lot, and then developers can respond by building that kind of more custom, smaller home product. If you're in the Madison area, there's a, a cottage cluster out on the west side called Chapel View. These are really small houses on small lots, and they're selling like hotcakes because there's a demand for people to buy either that you know first house as starting out or that kind of move-down house after the kids move out. Let's go back to our callers. Jim is with us in Iola. Jim, hi. Hi. Uh, it was an interesting conversation that you're having here. I'm just, I was talking to your, the person that answered, and uh, this was like in the early to mid-70s that when I was growing up, I lived at home with my folks. My dad worked at Wisconsin Electric, and he'd be hooking up all these neighborhoods. And I remember him one night in particular talking about there was a, a plot of land southeast side of town where, uh, you know, Vans Construction, that was the name of the business, we're, we're putting up homes, three-bedroom, 1,200-square feet, you know, box-shaped, 30-by-40-foot-size homes, and that they had different crews uh, in building these things. You know, you had to, you know, you know, they put the foundations in and, you know, frame it up and all that stuff. And uh, anyways, uh, to, to get to the, my statement here, uh, they were opening up, like, one house a day in the mid-'70s. I remember him talking about that, and, well, then – the weird thing is, years later, I bought one of those houses. <laughs> okay, and you know they're all kept up really nice. You know these houses now have appreciated in value over two hundred, mm. two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And when one goes, one went up for sale across the street from me, and it was sold the first day. Wow, Jim, yeah. thanks a lot for for sharing that experience. Uh, I don't do we do we make them like that anymore, Kurt? No, and that and that's a great story, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a classic illustration of what we used to build. We used to build that three-bedroom, 1,200-square-foot, right? And when you build a large subdivision and you can kind of almost assembly line the, the framing crews, the, uh, the contractors, the, the basements, right? The most famous example is, of course, uh, on, on Long Island, um, I'm Levittown, so, Levittown yep. right, where you would just mass-produce housing, and in particularly the post-war period in the 70s, when you build a lot of housing, that housing becomes affordable, mm -hmm. right? And so we've also had some, some shakeout in the construction industry. After the great financial crisis, a lot of people left the industry. So the total number of people employed building housing in the state of Wisconsin is a lot less today than it was in 2005, even though we've added half a million people. So even if we kind of waved our magic wand and we said we want to build a lot more housing, smaller housing, smaller lots, we also need to retrain and regrow the workforce of people to build those houses. Now, there is some possibility, innovation, that you could build those units in a factory, right, where you can have some robots, you have uh, better climate control, because Wisconsin is hard to frame other than six months in the year, and maybe deliver and build those, assemble those products on site. So that's where we need to innovate and get back to building a lot of that kind of entry-level housing because when you don't build it for 50 years, boy, you really notice it when it's gone. Thanks for that call, Jim. Mike joins us now in Beaver Dam. Mike, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. And I just uh, wanted to ask Kurt some advice. Um, 
I have a younger family uh, and a 20-year-old who's in college, and um, he actually is not able to find any housing. And so we actually took him and his girlfriend in uh, to our own home, uh, and, you know, they're living in a basement apartment pretty much. And so I'm just wondering if he has any advice for parents such as myself with kids in this situation. And, Mike, where is he going to school? He's actually going to a technical college for automotive. Okay. Thanks for the call, Mike. Just wondered how far the commute might be. Kurt, any thoughts? Well, this is funny because I also have a 20-year-old son in college, and we were talking about his housing yesterday. Uh, He's up in in St. Paul, and uh, much like at UW campus here, you know, the shortage of housing affects students, too, because in whether it's in Beaver Dam or in Madison, there's just a shortage of units everywhere. And so the kind of cheaper low amenity housing that a lot of us lived in as students, that's just not available because, you know, think of Madison where families want to live in the same houses that students do. So the advice I would give to everybody is unless we come together to solve this housing shortage, you better be prepared for your kids coming back to live with you. Well, the other solution is, um, you know, allow a bunch of students who may be near a technical college or a university to rent a home together Mm or to uh, move in together and share living expenses, right? And again, you can understand why, especially when a college town, you want to avoid the parties. But if you're concerned about parties or traffic, regulate for that. Don't regulate for the number of people who can live together. I mean, one of the ways to solve this problem of single-person households, right, is to allow more people to live together in a less-than-traditional relationship in the house, Mike, thanks for that call. Just our last half a minute or so, Kurt, do you get the sense that policymakers at state and local levels are starting to see this as a problem and take it seriously? Yes. I mean, you see around the state that every local official, they say housing is their biggest issue, Mm -hmm. and they understand that we can't keep doing what we've done. We have to open up the flexibility to allow more people to live together, to create that condo for seniors to move down into to open up that single-family home to allow smaller houses on smaller lots. And there was recent legislation at the state that gives municipalities and developers a lot of financial resources to make those zoning and subdivision reforms to uh, free up our housing supply. Kurt, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. That's Kurt Paulson with UW-Madison's Department of Planning and Landscape Architecture talking about a mismatch between household size and house and apartment size in Wisconsin. Tomorrow on the Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get the latest in the new Marquette University Law School survey one year ahead of 2024 elections. That's tomorrow on the Ideas Network. Yesterday on the show, we heard from the authors of a new book about American girl dolls and their place in American pop culture. A lot of you shared your stories. Here's a couple few more from colleagues here at WPR. Becca writes, my twin sister and I had American girl dolls growing up. I had Kit. She had Kirsten. While other girls in our school would brag about having all of them, we were happy to each have one. And one of my first jobs, Becca says, at a college was in the marketing department at American Girl. Trina says the American Girl book I read was Kit Kittredge, a girl growing up in Depression-era Cincinnati with a nose for news. Trina says I actually auditioned for the Kit Kittredge at American Girl movie with Abigail Breslin while they were casting in Chicago, but last my Hollywood career didn't take off. 
And Sarah on the other side of the glass there says, I was obsessed with the American Girl as a kid. My mom and I would go to the big garage sale in Madison every year, which provided some awesome mother-daughter bonding time. If you have a story to share, you can still do that. Email ideas at WPR.org or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, a consumer protection specialist will warn us about some of the latest scams and how to avoid falling for them. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a tour of a special cave. Bats are an important part of Wisconsin's wildlife. But over the last decade, a fungal disease called white nose syndrome has devastated bat populations in the state and across the country. In rural Crawford County, a cave that once was a tourist attraction is now protected by the Mississippi Valley Conservancy. It's a safe haven for the bats to hibernate and help scientists develop ways to stop the disease. Most of these bats have settled in for the winter, but before they returned, WPR's Hope Kerwin traveled underground to learn more about this unique cave. So the entrance to the cave is inside this little building. Welcome to Kickapoo Caverns. I'm Sarah Brattenober. I'm Communications Director at Mississippi Valley Conservancy. This doorway is really the only way in for people, but if you look up there, you see a little slot um, along the edge of the ceiling there. That's where the bats come in. Um, some bats fly south in the winter to, hide, to relax and be snowbirds, but um, there are four species of bat. They tend to hibernate here in the Northland, and so they look for places to hibernate where they're not going to freeze to death over the winter. There are a few low spots, so we're going to just take a little duck down here. We are in a completely different space now. We're underground. Oh, this must be 15 feet tall, the ceilings here. All around us, we're seeing kind of a flowing forms of limestone that are being dissolved. It's very damp in here because water is a part of what's going on that created this cave and continues to shape it. Do you see those cages under the stairway? We're making research accessible for the DNR and their partners to actually um, study possible solutions to the white nose syndrome. It's a fungus that's in this cave and it makes their skin itch, it makes them wake up, and in the middle of winter then they start flying around looking for something to eat and they just don't have the calories stored for them to be able to fly around. There is nothing to eat down here in the winter, and most of them have have starved as a result of being awoken. One of the things we do is just help people to be aware of bats and what bats need and why bats are good and what people can do for bats. But, you know, a lot remains to be seen about 
how the bats will do with this fungus in the environment. Will they develop a resistance to it? Is that why some of the bat populations in Wisconsin are coming back in the last year? Um, we don't know yet. Okay, here we go. We're just about at the end of the cave now. And if we go down to the very end here and look over the edge, you will see that is a pool of water right there. A lot of people have never seen anything like this before. And kids who get the chance to come down here are really wowed by it. You know, what a great way to introduce them to some of these ideas about conservation. WPR's Hope Kerwin took us on a tour of the Kickapoo Caverns. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Want to make sure you catch every Wisconsin Life story? Subscribe to our podcast and find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. This is Central Time. Now, you might consider yourself street smart and sensible, but scammers are coming up with new schemes every day. Good news, help is on the way. Our next guest is a consumer protection specialist with advice on how to avoid falling for the latest and not-so-greatest cons out there that you can encounter online, on your phone, and elsewhere. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever lost money because of a, a scam or if you had a close call? Have you received suspicious messages, emails, phone calls that you might uh, suspect might be scams? What are your personal rules for avoiding being swindled? What questions do you have? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Michelle Reinen is the Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection. Michelle, thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the problem, how big, how much it affects Wisconsin each year? Oh, absolutely. In Wisconsin, the Federal Trade Commission, our national consumer protection partner, helps us keep uh, data reports. And last year, 2022, $88.2 million was lost to fraud in our state. And that's just... Um, out of 44,000 fraud reports, those complaints uh, that consumers filed between the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection or directly with the Federal Trade Commission. And that median loss is $500, so very significant. And the losses can range quite a bit uh, by the type of scam and the age group that we're seeing impacted for these types of frauds. An example being that we see younger consumers actually falling victim to scams uh, more often as a total, uh, as a nation. And what I mean by that is those in their 20s, 20 to 29, report falling victim and losing money to fraud at 43%, where those in their 70s, 70 to 79, report falling victim and losing money 23% of the time. However, the median losses vary. Those in their 20s are losing $548, but when you hit that 70-plus um, range, you're in the 1000 to $1,600 median losses. So it, it can, can vary by age and it can vary by scam. 
According to some data from the Consumer Sentinel Network, there was a big jump in the number of scams reported uh, nationwide between 2019 and 2020. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask, did that have something to do with COVID? <laughs> Certainly, we did see an increase in scams related to COVID. We saw COVID-specific scams um, during the year. And then we also saw a significant increase in online scams and imposter scams. So um, quite a difference there. And to explain what an imposter scam is, this is when someone gives you a phone call and pretends to be from the U.S. government. Maybe they're saying they're from Medicare or Social Security. They may even say they're from a big tech company like Microsoft or Google and indicate that you have a problem. And imposter scams can also include a friends and family calling you saying they're in need or a romance scam where a scammer is impersonating a, a, someone that you, you fall for online. Um, and then we also saw those online scams, again, where people are setting up fake marketplaces, and that certainly happened during COVID, um, and they're trying to sell their goods there, and, and really they're not a legitimate retailer. And so you send your money, they have your financial information, and, and can take that money, but they send you no product. Another form of that imposter scam, and I got to say, this is one I've run into more in my life, is via email, where it says, uh, we're from the government, or... Uh, a streaming service that I happen to use or what have you problem with your account, click here to resolve this problem. Uh, I generally don't click there. How can we spot if something like that, that email that claims to be somebody uh, is actually a scam? You just gave a wonderful example of what we call a phishing scheme, um, and that's with the P-H-I-S-H phishing, where they are just sending you an email to entice you to click that link to do a verification or fill out a survey and hand over your personal information. Sometimes they're just asking you to indicate and validate a password because it may look like it's coming from your bank or a shipping company or um, some other fin financial institution or something that would activate you to act immediately because your finances or something could be at risk or, or paused or delayed there. Like you said, the U.S. government, your Social Security account could be at risk there. So the best way to spot those is to understand that um, the U.S. government isn't going to email you out of the blue, so you don't need to respond to that, and they're not going to ask you to click a link. Um, large companies aren't going to reach out to you by email and tell you that there is a problem with your computer, you know, in a tech support scam situations. And the other large companies, let's say a PayPal and an Amazon and large um national financial institutions aren't going to ask you to do an email verification because they know about these phishing scams. Um, they may say that there is a problem with your account, but they'll ask you to log in the normal way. They won't send you a link to click because that could redirect you to a scammer's imposter website where you are handing over that information. Other clues in the email that you can look for are um, grammatical problems. Uh, you may see that the images are a little fuzzy because they've copied and pasted them. 
in their imposter email there. And you'll also, if you're very careful, could maybe hover over the information um, where the email came from. And you can see that it doesn't actually end in the same extension as the company it's coming from or the email, the, the, the link they want you to click. If you carefully hover over that without clicking it, you also may see that it's not directing you to that same company that the email claims to be coming from. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Justin is with us in Madison. Justin, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you want to tell us about? Well, I had somebody call me um, from claiming to be from my bank, and that's when I realized that our checking account numbers are quite public information to anyone you've ever written a check to. And they called me and they said they were referencing my account ending in, and they gave me the last four digits of the account. They gave me enough information that it sounded very credible, but still there was something that was a, sounded a little bit off. You know, the hairs on the back of my neck were, you know, standing up. They said, we're going to send you a verification code to your cell phone. Please get me, give me those digits and we'll verify it to you so we can verify these transactions. My cell phone did go off, but something didn't from the fraud department, let me call you. Let me call the number on the back of my card and take care of this. They tried to get me to stay on the phone, and that's when I knew something was definitely up. They ended up hanging up on me, and I did not get scammed. Justin, thanks a lot for that call. Justin cut out for a brief moment there, Michelle, but the, the moral of the story, I think, was he said, let me find a publicly available inf- uh, phone number for my bank, call, and we'll pick it up from there. A good strategy? A wonderful strategy. Justin used reliable resource information. He had it in his hand on the back of the credit card, and you go to that. If your bank calls you, go get the last statement and call the phone number on that. Open the phone book. You know, don't always trust the Google or the whatever, you know, search engine you use because a scammer could try and get their fake ad to the top. So you need to be cautious of that information, but go to trusted sources of information. And there's always the option of driving yourself to your local bank if it involves your, your, your direct bank. Justin, thanks for that call. We're talking to Michelle Reinen, Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. We're talking to her about the most recent scams we're seeing and how to avoid being swindled. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you ever run into a situation you think might be a scam, but you weren't sure? How do you protect yourself from scams and fraud? Do you have questions about how to tell if an interaction is potentially a scam? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. We continue our conversation with Michelle Reinen, Administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Ag, Trade and Consumer Protection, looking at newer scams you might not have heard of and how to avoid falling for scams in general. You could join in with your questions, your experiences, maybe your advice at 800-642-1234. Before we go back to our callers, Michelle, are there things out there that are popping up over the last couple few months that uh, people may not have seen, but they may see soon? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing two different uh, tracks, if you will. One is using new technology. 
We're seeing an increase of artificial intelligence being used in scams. And this could be uh, in the romance scam where they're using that to create uh, photo images. And then we're also seeing it in the phone call friends and family scam, or maybe people have heard of it as the grandparent scam where you get a phone call that appears to be from a loved one. And they're using artificial intelligence to do voice cloning, picking up voice segments from social media. So we certainly want people to be aware of that and have a family plan really in place to be sure that they can um, react to that in the appropriate manner if they are concerned that the call for you know, emergency medical assistance or because someone's in jail or having some kind of a problem, that they can react to that safely and soundly without getting taken for a whole bunch of money there. Um, and that may be to set up a family passphrase uh, so you know that the call's legitimate and not something that's just a voice clone using that artificial intelligence. The other thing we're still swe seeing sweep through our state is certainly mailers that really um, entice consumers to take action quickly. Uh, different types. It might be to sell your home. It might be to renew an extended auto warranty or even now um, to renew an extended home warranty. And they ask for you to act immediately because these things are about to expire and you don't want to miss those opportunities. So realize that you probably don't even have a extended warranty in place. And you, again, just want to take your time through these situations and not react to these fake pleas for urgency. Let's go back to our callers. Janet is with us in Burlington. Janet, hi. Hi. So we were scammed by a United Airlines scammer. Um, I did not, I have not booked tickets on an airline since before COVID. And when I Googled United Airlines, I went to the first site, which I shouldn't have. Uh, it was a sponsored site. And uh, believe it or not, these scammers were actually able to book our tickets. They were able to apply a credit. And then when I said we, are, we needed a name change to uh, make sure that our tickets reflected what was on our passport and driver's license, they charged us $100 per person. I offered my American Express card. They said that they couldn't use that. I offered another card. They said they used it. And then they said, uh, call me back tomorrow, and we'll make sure that it went through. Uh, they would not accept my call. I called repeatedly, and finally I had to uh, cancel my American Express and Visa card and uh, do a uh, dispute on the money. So I would say to anybody listening to be careful that you get the authentic uh, website of mm. wherever you're trying to get to. Janet, thanks for the call. Michelle. Yeah, that's a great example of the, those imposter websites, those fake websites that are being set up, or they may even appear, quote, legitimate in that they are going through the routine with you and taking information and, and trying to do the, quote, work that you are asking them to do. But when it turns out at the end of the day, they are just collecting your personal information. So I really love that she took the immediate action to cancel both of those cards and filed disputes in order to get that money back. And it unfortunately, we do need to be cautious about those sponsored um, websites because it's a way for scammers to try and move their fake site up in front of the legitimate ones. So if you can type in the web address yourself and being very cautious that you don't have any typos in there so you don't end up at one of those uh, fake websites because they often try and select ones where it might be the most common mistype and direct you mm -hmm. to their site. Janet, thanks for that call. We've got another Janet on the line in Slinger. Janet, hi. Hi. Um, 
just yesterday I was called with one. My son had an accident on the way to work, they said, and he needed $8,200 bond. They sure have all the answers for everything, though. They're really good at what they do. And your son is okay, I I trust, Janet. Yeah, he's just fine. He was at work. It was no problem. But but I thought, why would I mail the money when I can take it over to the town he's at and bring him home if he doesn't have a vehicle anymore? (laughs) That's when I stopped. Janet, thanks a lot for the call. Michelle, this is something playing on our emotions. Obviously, in that situation, uh, we're not necessarily going to think clearly if we're hearing this bad news. How do we spot that relative had an accident uh, scam? Right. That perfect example of the friends and family scam where they uh, put the medical emergency accident situation. So you need to act right away. So this is an example of having that pass phrase uh, for the family. So if it's legitimate that her son could have used that phrase, but realize that they will use all sorts of techniques. They will create background noise to make it sound legitimate They could have an excuse as to why their voice is off if they're not using the voice cloning technology, like I broke my nose in the accident, so my voice is off. And they do study and get whatever information they can if they want to be precise. So again, they can collect information and data from social media. They will play off the cues you give them the longer you stay on the call. Um, and, and they are very talented. So if someone does fall victim to this, please don't feel bad about it because as she said, they are very good. They practice their craft. Um, just take action immediately and, and try and stop the situation by contacting your bank. If you've wired money, go back to the company you use to wire money to try and stop the transaction, but do what you can immediately to report it and try and stop the harm. Janet, thanks for that call. And Michelle, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Michelle Reinen is the administrator of the Division of Trade and Consumer Protection at Wisconsin's Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection. We talked to her about how to protect ourselves against the latest scams out there. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, unionized American auto workers went through their biggest strike in decades, and now there are agreements in the works with the big three automakers. Dig into the strike, the outcome, and what it all means for the industry, for workers, and for consumers. Also, Americans take a lot of non-prescription medications without always thinking about safety or potential drug interactions. Find out what you need to know about over-the-counter medications. That and more. It's all coming up tomorrow here on Central Time on the Ideas Network. Coming up after the news, the Internet makes it easier for more of us to learn about history, but that information might not always be accurate. We'll talk to a public historian about his new book, looking at the ways social media and the web change how we learn about the past. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.